Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Carol Sue Kleber was born in Covington, Kentucky on November 28, 1959. At the age of 16, Carol lived at 414 Werner Drive in Fort Wright, Kentucky, and loved music and her acoustic guitar. She also played the violin in Dixie Heights High School's String Ensemble. On June 4, 1976, Carol had left for a bike ride but returned at about 5.30 p.m. in an unknown man's car with her bicycle in the trunk. After arriving home, she took the bike out of the trunk and went inside for a few minutes. When she came back outside, she got back in the man's car and they drove off. Sadly, this would be the last time Carol was ever seen alive. The man was seen driving a two-tone Chevrolet Monte Carlo. However, investigators were never able to track it down. 14 hours later, her body was discovered in a ditch on Chambers Road about one and a half miles east of US 25 in Walton, Kentucky. An autopsy determined that she was strangled and sexually assaulted and ultimately died from blunt force trauma. DNA and fingerprints were collected from the crime scene, but it would take 50 years before they could use the evidence to solve the case. Over the years, the Kentucky State Police targeted two prime suspects, but DNA would later rule them out. In December 1976, the Cincinnati Post received an anonymous letter from the supposed killer. The letter claimed that authorities got Carol's time of death wrong, claiming he murdered her with a lead pipe around 8 p.m. and not midnight. He also seemed offended by his description, saying he was taller and weighed more than what the witness described. He said Carol never put up a fight, and he expressed regret in letting her drop her bicycle off. He also claimed to know the identity of a murder victim that was found in a field in Grant County, Kentucky, on April 17, 1976. He finished the letter by saying, P.S. I'm going to call myself Mr. Open Case until you figure out who I really am. It's an interesting letter, but authorities never believed it was authentic and it never led them to her killer. In September 2022, the DNA was sent to Othram for use in genetic genealogy, and they were able to give investigators the name of a likely suspect. In March 2023, Carol's killer was identified as 19-year-old Thomas W. Dunaway. Dunaway had an extensive and violent criminal history and died in 1990 at the age of 33. They also determined that at the time of Carol's murder, Dunaway drove a 1973 Chevrolet Monte Carlo. Nine days after Carol's body was discovered, Dunaway enlisted in the Army but went AWOL six months later. He then murdered 19-year-old Ronald Townsend and was sentenced to life in prison. However, he was released after only serving seven years. 
Donna D. Macho was born on October 16, 1964, in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. At the age of 19, Donna lived in a basement apartment at her parents' home in East Windsor, New Jersey, and worked as a legal secretary. However, she had dreams of becoming a model and was hoping to make a career out of it one day. On Saturday, February 26, 1984, Donna spent the night watching TV with her younger sister. At about 2.45 a.m., her sister decided to go to bed and went upstairs. Sadly, this was the last time she would see her sister alive. The next day, Donna had plans to go into the office in order to catch up on some work, so when her family noticed she wasn't home, they didn't think much of it. However, by 6 p.m. that evening, when Donna hadn't returned, her family became worried and called the police. About 90 miles away, authorities found her black 1979 Chrysler parked on the shoulder of Millston Road, not far from Cranberry, New Jersey. However, Donna was nowhere to be found. All four doors to her car were unlocked, and inside were her pocketbook with cash, credit cards, and her driver's license. They also found Donna's blood in the car. Upon searching her apartment, they found what appeared to be a struggle and were able to collect DNA from the scene as well. On April 2, 1995, over 11 years later, a Boy Scout troop had set up camp on the 250-acre farm of Edward Buss Simonson near George Davidson Road in Canberry, New Jersey. That night, the Boy Scout leader noticed a high-heeled boot extending out past a weather carpet and notified authorities. He said he had walked by this spot for the last eight or nine years and never noticed this before. When the police arrived, they found skeletal remains, along with women's boots and a pair of jeans. Using Donna's dental records, they were able to identify the skeletal remains as belonging to her. Sadly, her parents passed away before she was ever found. Eventually, the case would go cold and remain unsolved for the next 40 years. In 2022, the case was reopened and the DNA evidence was resubmitted for advanced testing. Using genetic genealogy, the name of a suspect was given to investigators. From there, they were able to positively identify the killer as Nathaniel Harvey. Harvey was arrested in 1985 for multiple sexual assaults and the murder of another woman. After being convicted, he was sentenced to life in prison and died in 2020 at Southwoods State Prison. His M.O. was to go into unlocked homes, sexually assault young women, and then hold them captive. Interestingly, Harvey's residence was within walking distance of where Donna's car was found. Donna's sister, Julie Berger, who was only 14 at the time of Donna's murder, said she was ultimately relieved that her sister's killer had finally been named, but remained tortured by wondering whether she could have possibly stopped the murder. Speaking publicly about the case for the first time, she said the family spent all their money hiring private investigators, trackers, and psychics to find the person responsible. With the investigation closed, Julie could finally receive her sister's remains and give her a proper burial. Julie Carol Griffin was born on February 26, 1958, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. On April 14, 1984, Julie married Mark Jensen, and they would have two sons together. In 1998, at the age of 40, 
Julie and Mark lived in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, where Mark worked as a successful stockbroker who had recently been promoted. Julie, on the other hand, worked part-time for the Chicago Port Authority. Unfortunately, after 14 years of marriage, the relationship had deteriorated after Julie had an affair about seven to eight years ago. On December 3, 1998, Mark called the police and claimed that he found Julie deceased in her bed. At first, police considered it a suicide, but it wasn't long before those theories changed to murder due to the events that followed. On the day Julie's body was found, her neighbors that she had been close with delivered a letter to the police. This letter had been handwritten by Julie and given to the neighbor two weeks before her death. The letter read, I took this picture and I am writing this on Saturday, 11-21-98 at 7 a.m. This list was in my husband's business daily planner, not meant for me to see. I don't know what it means, but if anything happens to me, he would be my first suspect. Our relationship has deteriorated to the polite superficial. I know he's never forgiven me for the brief affair I had with that creep seven years ago. Mark lives for work and the kids. He's an avid surfer of the internet. Anyway, I do not smoke or drink. My mother was an alcoholic, so I limit my drinking to one or two a week. Mark wants me to drink more with him in the evenings. I don't. I would never take my life because of my kids. They are everything to me. I regularly take Tylenol and multivitamins, occasionally take OTC stuff for colds, Zantac, or Imodium. have one prescription for migraine tablets, which Mark uses more than I. I pray I'm wrong and nothing happens, but I am suspicious of Mark's behaviors and fear for my early demise. However, I will not leave David and Douglas. My life's greatest love, accomplishment, and wish, my three Ds, Daddy, David, Douglas. Experts later compared the letter from past samples of Julie's writing and were able to confirm that she did, in fact, write it. She had also contacted Officer Ron Cosman before her death, leaving two separate voicemails for him. In the second voicemail, she said she thought her husband was trying to kill her. Cosman was away at the time on a hunting trip, but when he returned, he went to visit Julie. That's when she told him about the letter and a roll of film with photos of Mark's work planner that she gave to her neighbor. She then retrieved the film and gave it to Cosman. She also said if she was found dead, they should immediately look at Mark because she would never take her own life. She had also told her neighbors that she was worried Mark would poison her by putting something in her wine. On top of that, she found a website about poisoning that Mark had accidentally left open on the computer. The list in the planner included different drugs and syringes, which made her think he was going to give her an overdose of drugs. However, by the time investigators checked the planner, those notes were gone. Julie had also made similar comments to her son's teacher about fearing for her life and that her husband might try to kill her. While Julie's first autopsy didn't produce a cause of death, a second autopsy would show that ethylene glycol contributed to her death along with evidence of suffocation. It's unclear why it took five months, but in April 1999, Mark was finally questioned about Julie's death. He was asked to walk the detectives through the last couple of days before he found his wife. He said that Julie was having difficulty breathing and regretted not calling an ambulance. He said that on the day of her death, he discovered that she was unable to get out of bed and was having trouble walking. 
He also claimed that Julie had talked about wanting to end her life. When asked why he didn't do anything to help her, he responded by saying, I just watched her die. Mark was even shown photos of Julie's bent nose, indicating she was likely suffocated with a pillow, but he still maintained his innocence. Investigators also discovered that Mark was having an affair with a coworker at the time of Julie's death. Immediately after her funeral, Mark sold their house and moved. And less than a year later, in November 1999, Mark and his mistress were living together. By 2002, they were engaged and would eventually get married and have one child together. On March 19, 2002, Mark was arrested and charged with first-degree intentional homicide. Shockingly, the trial and legal battle would carry on for the next 21 years. Mark's bond was initially so high, he was unable to bail out and had to remain in jail. He eventually pleaded not guilty, and in September 2002, his bond was reduced, allowing him to finally get out. In 2003, a long battle would begin over whether or not the letter that Julie gave her neighbor could be admitted into evidence. In 2003, the letter and witness statements were approved for the trial, but in May 2004, the judge reconsidered the letter and removed it from evidence. That following September, the prosecution appealed the decision, and in 2005, the issue was assigned to the state Supreme Court. Finally, almost two years later, in February 2007, the state Supreme Court ruled that the letter and witness statements were admissible if the judge believed that Mark was the reason Julie could not be there to be cross-examined. Now that it was back in the judge's hand, in April 2007, he decided that the letter was admissible along with the witness statements. Almost 10 years after the death of Julie, Mark's trial began with the prosecution claiming he murdered her and the defense claiming she took her own life. The neighbors and the son's teacher took the stand and talked about how fearful Julie had been leading up to her death. Even the man she had an affair with was brought in to testify. He talked about the brief relationship that happened in 1991 and said it had permanently affected Mark and Julie's marriage and that Mark had put illicit photos around the home for years afterward. There was also evidence that showed someone in the home had performed internet searches regarding ethylene glycol with the defense claiming it was Julie. As for her cause of death, an expert for the defense claimed she could have taken her own life while the expert for the prosecution claimed she was asphyxiated and poisoned. Julie's doctor also testified that she was frantic before her death, and a psychiatrist would testify that she was depressed and likely took her own life. A witness who was incarcerated with Mark while he was being held came forward and said Mark had talked about how he had suffocated his wife. A co-worker of Mark's would testify that he talked about killing his wife and the only reason he hadn't come forward earlier was that Mark was still his boss at the time of Julie's death. Mark's new wife was also called to testify, and she talked about Mark's obsession with knowing about past partners and how he would spend time researching them online. On February 21, 2008, Mark was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, and in 2009, his second wife divorced him. However, in 2013, a judge overturned the conviction. He then gave the prosecution 90 days to either release Mark or set a new trial date. So why was the conviction overturned? The judge cited Mark's Sixth Amendment right as being violated by allowing the letter to be entered into evidence. 
The Sixth Amendment allows for the defendant to face the witness and cross-examine them, and with Julie dead, Mark wouldn't be able to do this. Then, in 2015, the Seventh Court of Appeals upheld the judge's reversal of the conviction, also saying that Mark's rights had been violated. At this point, the state announced it would retry Mark for Julie's murder, but in 2017, the judge taking the state's argument reinstated Mark's conviction. In 2021, Mark's conviction was overturned for a second time, and a second trial date was set. In January 2023, the new trial began without having the letter in evidence. During the trial, since some of the witnesses had since passed away, their statements were shown via videos from the past trial. Besides that, the trial went very similar to the original trial, with the exception of Julie's sons testifying in favor of their father. On February 1, 2023, the jury convicted Mark for the second time, and once again, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Mark continues to maintain his innocence along with his sons. However, Julie's brothers are happy with the outcome and glad their sister finally got the justice she deserves. Carla Jane Delcu was born on June 1, 1965, in East St. Louis, Illinois, and graduated from Carlisle High School. At the age of 22, Carla was living in Franklin County, Missouri. On June 24, 1987, a man digging up roots in the woods along North Service Road two miles west of St. Clair in Franklin County, Missouri, found Carla's body. An investigation determined Carla was likely strangled to death around the 20th or 21st of June in a house on Iron Hill Road in Union, Missouri, before being dumped in the woods. At the time, officers spoke to several potential witnesses and persons of interest, but no one was ever arrested, and sadly, the case would go unsolved for the next 30-plus years. In 2018, investigators with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office reopened the cold case and re-interviewed several key witnesses in multiple states. 68-year-old Kirby R. King, who ran in the same circles as Carla, was initially a person of interest and questioned, but police were never able to charge him with the murder. All these years later, King was still a suspect, and in December 2019, he was arrested in Texas and charged with second-degree murder. It's unclear what evidence led to his arrest, but in the end, King pleaded guilty and received the lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter. He was then sentenced to seven years for the manslaughter charge and three years for felonious restraint. Sharon Kim Pryor was born on February 9, 1959. At the age of 16, Sharon lived at 445 Congregation Street in the Pointe St. Charles area of Montreal, Quebec, and was a student at Verdon High School. She was described as a friendly person who was always very reliable and wanted to become a veterinarian. During Easter weekend on March 29, 1975, Sharon spent the day with her family decorating eggs. That afternoon, she and her little brother, Stephen, walked to the local Boys and Girls Club that Sharon had been involved with since she was six years old to pick up a jacket she earned from selling raffle tickets. After returning home, she finished painting the eggs. That evening, sometime after 7 p.m., Sharon left her home to walk the five blocks to Marina's Pizzeria, 
a local hangout spot where she was supposed to meet up with friends and her boyfriend, John McAleer. Sadly, she would never arrive. Meanwhile, her family waited for her to return, but she never did. That same night at 7.15 p.m., 23-year-old Cheryl Roy was attacked by an unidentified assailant. The man had curly hair and weighed around 200 pounds and had put a knife to her throat and attempted to rip her trousers. Thankfully, a nearby group of children heard the attack and ran toward the perpetrator, scaring him off. Three days later, on April 1, 1975, a local beekeeper found Sharon's body in a field across the St. Lawrence River in Lingale. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death. Investigators later determined that the man who attacked Cheryl Roy was likely Sharon's killer. Sadly, law enforcement was never able to find the man, and the case would go unsolved for the next 50 years. In 2003, a DNA profile was lifted from the blue t-shirt used to tie Sharon's hands, but the quantity of DNA wasn't sufficient enough to make a comparison at the time. Finally, in 2023, the case was solved after DNA evidence was collected from two pieces of her clothing and a blue t-shirt that was used to restrain her. A genetic genealogist then used the DNA to link to a potential suspect by the name of Franklin Maywood Romine. Romine lived on Dakari Boulevard in Montreal, around five miles from Sharon at the time of the murder. However, he died in 1982 at the age of 36 in Verdun, Montreal, under mysterious circumstances and was buried in a Putman County, West Virginia cemetery. Investigators obtained a warrant to have Romine's body exhumed on May 2, 2023. After testing his DNA against the DNA found at the crime scene, they determined it was a match. He also fit the description of Cheryl Roy's attacker, and a vehicle he owned used a type of tire that matched a tire print found at Sharon's crime scene. Romine was from West Virginia and had an extensive criminal record. In 1964, he attempted to escape from the West Virginia Penitentiary, but failed. He tried again in 1967 and was successful this time. In 1974, he was arrested for breaking into a house and sexually assaulting a woman in Parkersburg, West Virginia. In 1975, a few months after Sharon's murder, he was taken into custody by Canadian border officials and extradited back to West Virginia to face charges for the 1974 crime. He was then sentenced to five to ten years in prison. He would die in Canada in 1982, shortly after his release. After his death, his body was returned to his mother in West Virginia. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.